chapter 7. Now we're going to finish chapter 7. Moving right along. It's so good. I don't know about you, but I love thinking stuff. And Ecclesiastes makes you think. It really does. And so let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the word of the Lord is all the intellectual challenge and spiritual food and light for our path that we could ask for. We pray that tonight you will open your word to us, that we would see wonderful things in your law. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your engrafted word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him the word is good, and you can be seated. God bless you. All right, we're going to look at wisdom bringing strength tonight. And uh, boy, it's jumping around. There we go. Now, last time in chapter six and seven, we we finished. We did all of six and did part of seven. Uh, Solomon had revisited several of the issues that had vexed him in earlier chapters, uh, like working hard and gaining wealth only to die and have someone else take it who didn't work for it at all. He said, that's a vexation. And then the realization that he, that really occurred to him down the road, that riches don't bring happiness. Money can't buy you happiness. Happiness, as we've shared last time, is an inside job. And the Christian really has joy, not happiness. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Happiness is dependent upon a happening. And yet Christianity says you don't have to have an outside happening to have joy on the inside because getting right with God is what brings forth joy. Okay. So in chapter seven, at the beginning of the chapter, he discussed the value of a good name, a good reputation. And he said that it's better, more valuable than all the gold and silver. It's very valuable. You're better off keeping your name and being in poverty than losing your good name because you were trying to get rich. So many people lose their name trying to get money. Okay? So we closed out with Solomon uh, comparing one thing with another, a better thing. He he just started a list of comparisons. And if I remember uh, correctly, there's close to 10 of them. For instance, here's what we looked at last time. How it is better to soberly consider the realities of life, such as our own mortality. Everybody in here knows you're going to die one day. Raise your hand. The rest of you, you need, you need revival or you need a reality check. Unless the Lord comes back in the rapture, you are going to die one day. Uh, it's, it's, it's better to consider the realities of life than to be in a constant partying frame of mind where spiritual things are never explored. You're just partying hardy. You're always at a party and you never think about the things that are eternal. And Solomon doesn't want us being morbid. He doesn't want us being morose and walking around with a long face and a furrowed brow all the time. He's just saying it's wise to step back and consider I need to be ready for eternity. And a lot of people never do that. How many people die in that party mode? where they've never thought about the true realities of life. 
So that's his advice for us. Now in verses 5 through 10, Solomon is going to continue with his comparisons of one thing against another, showing us which of the two that he compares is the better thing. And this is so like the Proverbs. This is, of course, this is Solomon who wrote most of the Proverbs. And that's what he does in the Proverbs. He compares one thing with another, showing you which is good, which is bad, which is best, which is not. That's his approach. And nobody was better at it than him. Now, chapter 7, verses 5 to 6. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. Now, he's telling us that something is better that doesn't feel good. Have you ever realized that some of the things that really don't feel good or taste good are the things that are really best for you? I mean, my mother never did get me to eat broccoli. Never did. Now, I'll do it now with cheese on it and all kinds of other stuff on it, but she used to try to get me to eat, and I just couldn't do it. But she would say, Jeffrey, now she's probably watching again now, Jeffrey, now this is good for you. And I didn't care if it was good for me. I just knew it didn't taste good. But, you know, in life, think about it, rebuke is like that broccoli. Who likes to be rebuked? I don't, okay? But it stings. Uh, It's easy to get defensive. And how much easier is it to be in an atmosphere of levity where flatteries and shallow chatter are the rule of the day? And how, how much easier is it to prefer that? So much easier. Yet Solomon points out that this kind of atmosphere is not advantageous to the soul. It is not as advantageous to your soul to be around people who won't tell you the truth. In love. Now, I don't want somebody nitpicking me all the time, but if I have somebody who really loves me and can tell me the truth, Kathy can do that sometimes. I, I, I mean, I get defensive. She gets defensive. How many of you take it right 100% of the time? Criticism. It's, it's not easy. But I know if she tells me, she's telling me in love. That I know. Now, there's other people. I'm not so sure. But isn't it easier to be around people who are going to lie to you about you, build you up with flattery instead of being truthful and telling you things that are to your advantage, your real advantage? So he compares the shallow talk of the fool to the snap and crackle of twigs in a fire, which for a time make a great noise and flame up. But just like the laughter of fools, that fire goes out quickly and it was shallow and meaningless and came to nothing. And he's saying, that's what it's like to be in the company of fools. That's party laughter, meaningless laughter, meaningless chatter. Better to heed the rebuke of somebody who genuinely cares about your life. You know, David spoke about this, and Solomon talked about it several times in the Proverbs. Look what David said in Psalms 141, verse 5. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. If you are righteous and you see something in my life that needs correcting, and you can tell me in love, let me not refuse it. Because I'll grow from it. Look what he said, Solomon, in one of the Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 18. Poverty and shame, he writes will come to him who disdains correction. 
but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. He who listens to a rebuke given in love and changes based on the rebuke will be honored. It's broccoli, but it makes you healthier. Okay? It's been my experience that very, very few people receive correction well. Very few. Most become defensive, resentful, and even retaliatory if you try to point out something that that needs to change or that might save them from pain down the road. You say, I see something that if you don't change it, it's going to hurt you down the road. And our generation, our Western culture, has trained people to say things like this. Who are you to judge me? We've been trained to do that. Bible says don't judge, which is stupid. The Bible never says don't judge. Did you know that? What about Jesus said it? He said it. He was talking about the wrong kind of judgment. He didn't say don't judge. Okay? Even a bird judges when a cat is coming its way. What would happen to all of God's created creatures if they decided not to judge? They would die this week. They all judge. I I got bird feeders out back. I've told you this. I love feeding those birds. And I've watched those birds. You can have, let's just say you have several sparrows on the feeder, just sparrows and, or doves. And there they are just pecking away at the food, eating it, but they're always looking for the enemy. And I've noticed a blue jay can fly up. They don't budge. Uh, A cardinal can come up. They don't, they don't move. They don't, tremble. They don't even pay. They don't seem to pay attention. Uh, any of a variety of birds can fly right up and land next to them, but they are not startled at all. But if a hawk even comes near, they know his flight pattern. They know his shape. They know everything about their enemy and they flee. They judge and it saves their life. We're supposed to know the hawk when we see it. All right? But now, Jesus just said don't judge like a Pharisee. But he didn't say don't judge. But we, we got, we've been so trained by the PC culture that if anybody judges us, who are you to judge me? Don't judge. You don't have any room to judge. Or, well, you do thus and so and thus and so and thus and so. So who are you to judge me? I think we would faint, wouldn't we, if somebody said, wow, I'll take your suggestions to heart and pray about them. Thank you for the input. Jesus, hold me up. Okay? And so as a result, a lot of the times we miss good, godly correction that could save us some pain. And, we, we, you know, that's just the way it is. So he said, you need, to, you need to receive that rebuke. Now, better to listen to loving rebuke than the shallow flattery of people who really don't care much for your welfare. Now, look at verse 7. He goes on, Surely oppression destroys a, man's, a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. Now, he's telling us two things can destroy the wisdom of a wise man. How many of you want to hang on to your wisdom? Let me tell you two things that can destroy it. The intoxication that comes from having the power to oppress others 
and a bribe that seduces the wise man into making decisions contrary to his good character. And yes, I wrote that last line. Can anyone say Washington? If you want to talk about bribes. Bribes corrupt people. Bribes destroy good character. So you're in there, you're elected by a bunch of people, and you go in there to serve the people that elected you, and suddenly here comes folks that want you to to write a certain law, vote a certain way, and they offer you an advantage. We call it pork. We call it a payoff. And they receive that bribe. And they don't know that the minute they take that bribe, it corrupts their character and destroys their wisdom. Wisdom should never be for sale, nor should our character for any price. Because it will bite you down the road. It may not immediately, but like I said at the beginning, what you sow will come back more than you sow later than you sowed it. So you accept a bribe, think you got away with it. No, you immediately were corrupted and down the road, it'll turn around and bite you when people learn of how you sold your character. So you hold on to your character. You hold on to it. In verse eight, we're given two more better things. Look what he says. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Now let's keep in mind here that Ecclesiastes is the record. It's, it's really the diary of a quest by Solomon after the chief good. What is best in life? What fulfills me? What is, what, what really satisfies my soul? The preacher, as he's called, tries one thing after another and shares his experiences And he makes many, many blunders along the way. And it's the final lesson which he would have us learn, not the mistakes he made reaching what he learned. He's not telling us to make the same mistakes. Never did he say, I want you to go and get drunk all the time, like he apparently did. Never did he say, go be promiscuous. But he lets us know what he learned at the end. Okay? And that's what we're to take out of Ecclesiastes. Now, So he's saying the end of a thing is better than the beginning. At the beginning of something, we have foresight, which is usually wrong, at least in many ways, and full of presumptions and misconceptions. But in the end of a thing, we have hindsight, which is generally much clearer and more accurate. Let me give you an example. For instance, if you were to start a business for the very first time, you you might assume that you know how to do it, what to expect, and how it's going to turn out. You have all these preconceived notions of how to do a business, what to put into place, how to handle it, how to manage it, and you believe it's going to turn out a certain way. But then you start the business. And in a few years, you look back in hindsight and see that some of the things you assumed were wrong. Your wisdom, knowledge, and understanding are now enhanced So you can say, now the end of this thing is better because I've got more wisdom. I understand more. I I understand the game better. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. 
And I can tell you that's true of starting churches. When somebody tells me they're going to go start a church, I say, have you ever done this before? They say, no. I say, I will pray for you. I will fast for you. And I'll be here if you need to call. Invariably, they call. Wow, Pastor Jeff, I was not counting on this, that, and the other, and the other. I say, all right, keep going. Take your bumps. Make your mistakes. When you get to the other side, you will say, the end of this is better than the beginning. Okay? Now, next, he's making another comparison. Same verse, verse 8. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, the word patient, you know words matter. I tell you that all the time, especially Bible words. The word patient here means literally long of spirit, long of spirit. As the phrase short of spirit is used in Proverbs 14, 29, Job 21, verse 4, to describe somebody who's temp- who loses his temper and is impatient. So he's telling us, better is the person who can put up with something for a long time without losing their cool than the person who's proud. The ability to wait calmly, please catch this. The ability to wait calmly for the result of an action and not to be hasty in blaming God when things don't go your way is the part of a patient man. While the proud, inflated, conceited man who thinks everything's got to be arranged according to his notions and plans and will is never resigned or content but rebels against God's hand. That's what the proud man does. He can't wait on God. He can't wait on others. It's all about him. you got to move when he wants to, stop when he wants to, go where he wants to, do it the way he wants to do it, or he's short of spirit and loses his temper. That's the proud man. But the patient man, here's what the patient man says. I trust the providence of God. I trust the timing of God. I can sit here and wait on God. I can Psalms 46, 10 it. Be still, knowing that I am God. The Amplified Bible says, let go and relax and know that I am God. The patient man knows that God is in charge. The impatient man, the proud man, doesn't know that. He doesn't realize that God is in charge. But the patient man knows that God is in charge. As David said, my times are in your hand. And he's able to wait and wait for God to open that door, for God to move in that particular issue. He's able to wait for God. And that's, that's why the patient man is a powerful man. He may not look like it to the world. He may look like he's not a man of action. But no, the patient man understands. I'm not going to get ahead of God. I'm not going to get behind him either. I'm going to wait on God. And when God gives me his word, I'm moving then. But until then, I'm not going to get mad at him. I'm not going to say, where are you? I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to wait on his timing. Because for everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. So the patient man knows that. And he can wait. Now, I don't do it perfectly. I do it better than I used to. 
Oh, I've many times looked up and said, when are you going to move? <laughs> I've looked up. Hey, I understand Abraham saying, hey, God, do you realize I'm uh, in my 90s now? I'm waiting on a son. It ain't happening. So me and, me and Sarah, we've hatched a scheme. And it, the scheme hatched an Ishmael. And the Ishmael haunts him the rest of his life and troubles the world to this day. Because he couldn't wait on God. So everybody say with me, wise to wait on God. Wise to be patient. So to be patient is better. He continues this thought in verse 9. You're going to notice a stream of thought as these verses continue. Verse 9, he says, don't hasten in your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. Now, have you ever noticed it's the impatient person who's usually the angry person as well? I'm going to say that again. Y'all must be under conviction. I'm kidding. It's the, it's the impatient person who's usually the angry person as well. They're always mad because they can't wait. They're always mad at circumstances. Always angry at the way things are going or not going. So this verse, when, when he says in this verse, don't hasten in your spirit to be angry, this is not a general exhortation against unrighteous anger. That's not what he's talking about. But it's leveled at the haughty indignation that a proud man feels when things don't go the way he wants. And he gets angry. These kind of people don't have a lot of friends. Because nobody likes to be around somebody that's explosive and angry all the time. And if you make one little mistake with them, they're snapping at you. It's not easy. This person is angry at the providence of God. That's the anger that rests in the bosom of fools. When you don't trust the providence of God. Now, what do I mean by providence? He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over you. He's sovereign over the timings in your life. You are where you are tonight by the providence and sovereignty of God. If the sovereignty of God were not for you to be alive right now, you would not be alive. He holds your next heartbeat in his hands. He's sovereign. That means he's king. He's ruler over his universe, not the devil. God. The devil's a dog on a leash. The devil can't do anything apart from God allowing him to do it. So this is talking about people who are walking around angry at the providence of God. How come I haven't met the one yet? How come I haven't gotten that six-figure salary yet? How come I'm not prettier? How come I'm not more handsome? How come you made me this way? How come this? How come that? How come that door didn't open and this terrible door is the one that opened? And how come I can't seem to, and it goes on and on. And anger, that anger against providence rests in the bosom of fools. He has no patience to wait on God and he disagrees with God's will. He wants what he wants when he wants it the way he wants it. Solomon says, that's the anger of a fool, for only a fool would disagree with the judgments of an all-wise creator. <laughs> that's what he's saying. So he's not just saying, don't get angry. He's saying, don't get angry at God. There are people that will not be in church 
here this week and churches all over America because deep down they're angry at God. They got a beef with God. Solomon says, avoid that. God knows what he's doing and he's for you. He's not against you. Then in verse 10, this attitude of discontent with God's hand continues. Look what he says in verse 10. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? How many of you have said that? Come on, tell the truth. How many of you have ever said, look back piningly saying, those were the days? How many of you have ever done that? Oh, I've done it. I've done it. Oh, yeah. Now, so here comes the word of God saying, don't do that. For you do not inquire wisely when you ask that question. It's very, very common for all of us to overly romanticize the past. And you know what gets me? When you were back there at the time that you are romanticizing now, you weren't happy then. Things were going wrong then. You weren't content with everything then. And you were wishing things were different then. But now, five years, ten years down the road, you're looking back going, oh, those were the days playing your violin. But back then they weren't the days. Isn't it weird the way we do that? As the old song says, some of you know this song. Those were the... All the baby boomers have it. We thought they'd never end, right? Famous song. Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. We'd sing and dance forever. We look back on some golden day when the sun was shining, birds were singing, life was good, and we say, if only those days were here again. What's that other saying? Happy days are here again. He says, he says, hey, wise man, wise woman, it's not of wisdom that you say that. Because the same God that blessed you back then can bless you now. See, if you look back in that rearview mirror, back to the past you can look back so strongly that you miss what God wants to do right now. That's why it says, remember not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Shall you not know it? So the same God that made them good days back then can make better days today. Solomon points out that such complaints are, in fact, just another form of the spirit which is hasty to be angry. Because, again, we're talking about looking up and being angry upward, vertically, at God. I don't understand your providence, Lord, so I'm mad the way my life is gone. And now, Lord, I'm looking up saying, today is not any good. It was back then that it was better. And that is another way of being discontent and saying, God... I don't trust you to do a good thing now. I mean, I came to Christ in the full-blown, red-hot revival of the Jesus movement. When, I mean, people were being saved without anybody even witnessing to them. I mean, everybody was being saved. It was popular to be a Christian. Thousands and millions of young people were being brought into Christ in America. And it was a beautiful, powerful time to come to know the Lord. And I have talked to so many people from those days who still 
live there. They always want to get with the old people. They always want to get with everybody who was back there. They want to have reunions. They want to have this, that, and the other. Let's, let's celebrate the old times. Now, that's fine from time to time. I'm not totally trashing that. You know, high school reunion's great. But if you want to have a high school reunion every year, something's wrong. you got to move on. And so I, my attitude is, I'm thankful for back then, but let's believe for something powerful now, today. I mean, let's see God do something now. Breathe again, move again, flow again, Holy Spirit. So, so don't let yesterday make you ruined for today, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, Paul wrote. So it betrays a lack of contentment with God's hand when you're always talking about the good old days. Can everybody say with me, I'm blessed now. I'm blessed today. Say with me, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Amen. Amen. Now, he goes, in, continuing his thought in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and it's profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. It takes wisdom to live this Christian life. I mean, a lot of people are saved, but they don't have the wisdom to live this Christian life. So they're really not reaping much from it. But when you get wisdom to live the Christian life, then that is when it strengthens you, brings true life to you. Notice what he says it'll do for you. Wisdom is profitable. It's a defense and it gives life. Now, verse 13, consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked. Say with me, nobody. Now he, again, he's just looking up and say, okay, I am subject to providence. So I'm not going to kick against providence because what he's made crooked, I can't make it straight. I can't change what providence has decreed. I mean, gravity is going to be here until the rapture comes. Then a lot of folks will defy gravity. But listen, gravity's never going to leave. I've got to accept it. If I jump off a building, I'm going to die. I can't change the way God has made things fundamentally. So I, and I, I can't change his rulings. So once again, here he is really pointing to, I'm not going to be angry at God and his providence over my life. I'm not going to be angry at God because it seems like yesterday was better than today. And I'm not going to kick against the providential, sovereign God and his rulings. True wisdom is shown by submission to the inevitable. That's what he's telling us. In all that happens, one ought to recognize God's work and God's ordering and man's impotence to alter his providence. So that leads right into the very next verse, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. 
But in the, day of, in the day of adversity, consider something. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. Did you catch that? He has appointed the day of prosperity, and he has appointed the day of adversity. No, he hadn't, Pastor Jeff. That's a bad confession. Oh, please. That's what the Bible says. Don't give me the confession stuff. I'm confessing by reading the word. This is what it says. He appoints God. I'm going to blow some of you away. You're not going to like this, but God sends some trials. How are you ever going to grow? I love cycling. You know that. And it's especially fun when the wind is at your back. And where I ride, you've always got a strong wind coming at you, either going or coming. So I choose the strong wind blowing against me in the first lap so that I can have it at my back coming home. And I can tell you that though going into it is not as much fun, it's what gives me muscle. And when God sends trials, he must believe you can handle it. And he must also believe you need your muscle stronger, your faith stronger. Faith that is never tested and tried is flabby, atrophied faith. So he said... God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Again, both good times and trials come from God's hand. In good times, rejoice when the wind is at your back. In hard times, consider. Pray about what God is saying to you. When there's resistance, when you really are experiencing some heat. That, I believe, is a signal where God wants to get our attention and say, I want to speak to you. All right, Lord, I'm listening. You got my attention. My Bible is open. Like David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I drifted. But now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word. We have a way of getting into that Bible when we're afflicted. And that's when God speaks to us. So pray about what he's saying to you because he's in charge of both. Verse 15, he said, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Now, he's talking here about something that's vexed every one of us. It vexed his daddy, David. Uh, Jeremiah wrote about it. Jeremiah said, I don't understand your judgments. Habakkuk wrote about it. Habakkuk said, I don't get it. Why do the wicked prosper? I do not understand. A righteous man succumbs to calamities and dies young in spite of his righteousness. And a wicked man lives long in spite of his wickedness. We've all seen it. And people will say, why in the world, Pastor Jeff, does God let that happen? Is that our reward that we live in righteousness and Die young? And here's this scoundrel who lives in wickedness, who mocks God, who blasphemes his name, yet he lives to be 95? How is that fair? It's not ours to ask what's fair or not fair. Paul said, who are you to reply against God? I can tell you this. Sometimes that wicked man that lives to be 95, it might be the mercy of God because that's the best He's ever going to know. Because when he dies, 
he will meet his maker on bad terms. So Solomon says, I don't get it. In verses 16 to 18, he says, don't be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, there's a verse for you. Don't be too righteous. And don't be too wise. Is that what he's saying? And then he goes on, don't be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why would you die before your time? Verse 18, it's good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. What is he saying here? Here's what he's saying. He's not talking about the genuine righteousness of living a holy Christian life before God. I want you to say something with me. You can't be too holy. Okay? You can't be too holy. And, and, and you can't be too righteous in Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the pharisaical kind of righteousness that is filled with regulations and rules and and thou shalt not this and shalt not that and can't do this and can't do that that choke the joy out of life. He's talking about being overly encumbered with too many pharisaical, unbiblical rules that didn't come from God. Because the Pharisees were at the point where they couldn't move. There were so many regulations and rules and thou shalt not. It was miserable to be a genuine Pharisee because you had no life. He's saying, don't do that. Nothing will take you to an early grave faster than too many rules and too much wickedness. See, that's what what a lot of people think about church. If I go to church, I'm going to be hit with a bunch of rules and regulations, and I'm going to have to be a Bible toter and go out, and, and everything is going to be what I cannot do. And that is such a misrepresentation of Christianity because Christianity frees you from things you shouldn't do so that you can do the things you should do. It it frees you. I can do things a lost person cannot do. I can worship God in the beauty of holiness. Lost person can't do that. I can walk in the Holy Spirit. The lost person can't do that. I can take in and learn the wisdom of God and walk in the light of life. The, the lost person can't do that. Church is not a place where you come and get chained up. Church is a place where you come to get free to do the things you ought. That's church. So... Solomon says, don't be overly righteous in that way. Don't be loaded down with burdens of rules and regulations that didn't come from God, from the Word, from the New Testament. Okay? And don't be overly wicked. Well, that's clear. If you want to go home, go into eternity quicker, be more wicked. Sin will kill you. Isn't it interesting how the devil lies to people that sin will enhance their life, bless their life, bring more joy and fun to their life, when in fact the wages of sin is always death. It's always losing more and more and more of your liberty. And walking that narrow path that people think is so restrictive is the path that leads to life and freedom. So 
Then verse 19 and 20, he says, Wisdom strengthens the wise man more than ten rulers of the city, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Now, the wisdom of avoiding empty religion and a wicked life gives a person more strength than having ten kings on your side. He's continuing from that last verse. And we need wisdom badly because, you know what, by nature, we err due to sin. Why do I need that Bible every single day? Because if you leave me to my own judgment or you to your own judgment and you follow your own heart, you're going to go astray in a matter of weeks. The Word pulls us in, pulls us up, keeps us straight, keeps us on that narrow path that leads to life. If you follow your own heart, that's the fool's way. Following the dictates of your own heart is what our culture has bit into hook, line, and sinker, and they're perishing for it. Just follow your heart. Follow your heart. I will tell you, don't follow your heart, your carnal heart, your natural heart. Only follow your heart if it agrees with Scripture, period. So we need wisdom. Now, verses 21 and 22, also don't take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Now, you know what he's saying here? Don't worry about what people think. Most of the time, they're not thinking about you like you think they are anyway. But if they are, and if they're running you down, don't worry about it. Because all men are sitters. They will be inclined towards gossip and rumor mongering. And the wise man says Solomon won't pay it any heed. We got to get to the place, folks, where we don't care really what people think. If they criticize your faith, eh, water off a duck's back. If they criticize you because you walk with God, I had a parent come up to me Sunday, a grandmother, very distraught. She said, My grandson is persecuted every single day in high school. He said, There's a group of kids that uh, come up to him virtually daily, and mock him for believing in God. Call him stupid for believing in God. And Pastor Jeff is really starting to get to him. What do I do? I said, well, there's some things that he can learn to respond to these little teenage atheists. But the bottom line is, is get to the point where it doesn't bother you. Who are they? People's opinions are fickle. You're a hero one day, zero the next. They pat you on the back one day, stab you in the back the next. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread one day, and you stink the next. They change like the wind. I I live for an audience of one. And I say that all the time, but if I didn't do that, I couldn't do this. I live for an audience of one. I care extremely, exceedingly what he thinks. But people, eh, You say, well, Pastor Jeff, that's, that you ought to care. Well, look at Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you. And did you know that was there? Can I paraphrase that? I don't care what you think. <laughs> now, I'm not saying give up your Christian testimony. That's not what I'm saying. But look what he's telling them. I don't care if you evaluate me. And look what he said. I don't even evaluate myself but I let him evaluate me. So Paul got to the point where 
I don't care what you think. I do care what he thinks. Now, besides, you've done the same thing towards others, haven't you? How many of you have ever gossiped against a person? Ooh, we need to have an altar call in here tonight for people who are in bondage to lying. You've done the same thing. You've cursed others. You know, we, we, we all do it. So don't be thin-skinned. Keep your soft heart, but develop a, a crocodile hide. Verses 23 to 25, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon finally had to give up his attempt to solve the problems of the universe. That's what he's telling us. Uncle... I don't understand it all. And he decided to confine himself to understanding how to live life. Content if he could simply find guidance there. If I can just learn to be fulfilled and content in life, that's all I want. Because I'm never going to understand the deep things of God. Now he takes a real quick turn at the end of this chapter. Look at what he says, verse 26. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Why in the world would he take this turn after all this profound philosophical thinking? Why is he suddenly talking about women? You know what he's doing? He's repenting. He, he has realized, not only did alcohol not make me happy, and riches didn't make me happy, but neither did all these women. He's, he's repentant. In, in all of his searching, he had discovered the painful folly of the wrong kind of woman, and he's filled with remorse. If you read the Proverbs especially 5, 6, and 7, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, uh, you'll hear him talking about the strange woman, the loose woman, the seductress. He names these various types of women that we know he's speaking autobiographically. And he's filled with remorse over all that he's wasted, all the years chasing the wrong kind of woman. Uh, the imagery he uses to describe this type of woman is powerful. Her heart, he says, is like a snare, a trap that springs shut over a prey. So he's talking about the heart of this woman. She is not a woman that blesses. She is a woman that traps. Or like a net, like the kind of, fi- uh, of net that a, a fish is taken in. You know, fish is just swimming along, and all of a sudden there's this invisible net that he's suddenly trapped in and hauled up to the surface and has lost all control of his life. That's the kind of woman he's talking about. He's talking about the lustful relationships, lust-driven relationships. 
not a wholesome relationship. This woman is skilled at drawing a man into her web and trapping him emotionally. It's not just physical. Delilah had Samson trapped emotionally. I marvel. Time after time, he would lie to her about how he would lose his strength. She would run and do the thing he told her. And then it wouldn't work. And she'd say, Samson, Samson, you're lying to me. And, and he stayed there knowing that as soon as he told her what she thought would ruin him, she ran and tried it. And yet she, he stayed there. How stuck on stupid can you be? I mean, over t- several times. Oh, that wasn't it. Oh, tell me the truth, Samson. Tell me what will really do it. Finally, the he-man with a she-weakness told her. And he lost his eyes. He lost his future. He lost his longevity of life. Her hands are like chains. Once they hold you, you're bound to her. If anyone had the authority to speak about this, it was Solomon who had married hundreds of women just like the one he describes. He, he indeed became snared, trapped, and enslaved to them, drifting away into the grossest idolatry through their influence because he who pleases God, he says, will avoid them. But he was carried into total spiritual darkness. And if he hadn't hooked up with those women, we wouldn't have Ecclesiastes because he would not be in this despair. Isn't that something? So everybody say with me, avoid them. 27 to 29, we're going to close. Here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. Now, you've got to understand he means the right kind of woman, a godly woman. Truly, This only I have found, that God made man upright, but instead of being content with that uprightness, he's saying, they seek out many schemes that get them in trouble. Now, let me just close with this thought. Though he claims to have sought long and hard, he could not find a godly woman. I'm going to tell you why. By the way, his use of the number 1,000 has to be because he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. A thousand women saying, Solomon. A thousand. (laughs) No wonder he wrote Ecclesiastes. A thousand. Now, so that's why he used that number, no doubt about it. Now, well, of course, he did not find the right kind of woman. Why? Because you can't find a rose in a briar patch. Now, I want all of you single people to listen to me real carefully as we head to the close here. He had shopped in all the wrong places. I'm amazed. Women say, women say I, I want to find a man. I want to settle down. But you don't find a quality man in a bar. Stop. Wait a minute. I like what John Hagee calls them, lounge lizards. <laughs> lounge lizards. It, it, girls, if you want to find a quality man, you've got to, you've got to fish in a clean pond. 
And men, if you want to find a quality woman, you've got to fish in a clean pond. This is logic. It's just common sense. Solomon went fishing in all the wrong places. His wives were all pagan, all godless, and they didn't share his faith at all. So if you want a good woman or a good man, you've got to fish in a clean pond. No wonder he wrote in the last chapter of Proverbs, who can find a virtuous wife? Her price is far above rubies. And I want to say, in this day and age, you've got to pray a good person in. Because they are more and more rare. I'm so thankful for Kathy. She never went off into sin, ever. She's a better Christian than I am in a lot of ways. She is. I'm embarrassing her. Well, she's, she was raised in church, church girl. And, and so, and I was in a youth group that was bursting with revival. That's where I was fishing. And one day I went out there to teach and saw her. And she was. <laughs> That's right. Isn't it interesting that the man who had it all, who could snap his fingers and have the most beautiful women in the land come to him, Grew weary of a hot body with no soul. And on that hot note, I'm going to close. Let's stand, can we? Let's lift our hands to the Lord and just thank Him tonight. Lord, we just thank You for wisdom. We thank You for the wisdom of God. Help us, Lord Jesus to walk with you all the days of our life, to embrace your word, the word of wisdom, knowledge and understanding, your word, that we would cleave to it, hold it tight, to walk in wisdom. Can you just pray with me tonight and say, Lord, increase my wisdom, my discernment, that I would spot that hawk, coming my way that I would wisely choose my relationships that I would never sell my character for a bribe in Jesus name let's sing a stanza